Chapter Thirteen of Theodoric the Goth by Thomas Hodgkin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen Boethius. Hitherto, the career of Theodoric has been one of almost unbroken prosperity and the reader who has followed his history has perhaps grown somewhat weary of the monotonous repetition of the phrases of his mildness and his equity unfortunately he will be thus wearied no longer the son of the great ostrogoth set in sorrow and what was worse than in sorrow in deeds of hasty wrath and cruel injustice which lost him the hearts of the majority of his subjects and which have dimmed his fair fame with posterity many causes combined to sadden and depress the king's heart as he felt old age creeping upon him providence had not blessed him with a son and while his younger rival clovis left four martial sons to defend and also to partition his newly formed kingdom theodoric's daughter amala suentha was the only child born of his marriage with clovis's sister in order to provide himself with a male heir for the customs of the goths did not favour if they did not actually exclude female sovereignty theodoric summoned to his court a distant relative a young man named eutheric descended from the mighty hermanric who was at the time living in spain eutheric who was well reported of for bodily vigour and for statesmanlike ability came to the ostrogothic court married amala suentha five fifteen four years afterwards received the honour of a consulship which he held along with the emperor justin and exhibited games and combats of wild beasts to the populace of rome and ravenna on a scale of unsurpassed magnificence but he died probably soon after his consulship leaving two children a boy and a girl and thus theodoric's hope of bequeathing his crown to a mature and masculine heir was disappointed still however he would not propose a female ruler to his old gothic comrades and the little grandson athalaric though under ten years of age was solemnly presented by him to an assembly of gothic counts and the nobles of the nation as their king the proclamation of athalaric was made when the king felt that he should shortly depart this life probably in the summer of five twenty six i have mentioned it here in order to complete my statement as to the succession to the throne but we will now return to an earlier period to the events which immediately followed eutheric's consulship coming as he did from spain the visigothic lords of which were still an aristocracy of bitter arians in the midst of a cowed but catholic roman population eutheric who as we are expressly told was too harsh and hostile to the catholic faith may have to some extent swayed the mind of his father-in-law away from its calm balance of even-handed justice between the rival churches but the state of affairs at constantinople exercised a yet more powerful influence anastasius who though no arian had during his long reign been always in an attitude of hostility towards the papal see was now dead and had been succeeded by justin this man a soldier of fortune who had as a lad tramped down from the macedonian highlands into the capital with a wallet of biscuit over his shoulder for his only property had risen by his soldierly qualities to the position of count of the guardsmen and by a judicious distribution of gold among the soldiers 
gold which was not his own but had been entrusted to him for safekeeping he won for himself the diadem and for his nephew as it turned out the opportunity of making his name forever memorable in history justin was absolutely illiterate the story about the stenciled signature is told of him as well as of theodoric but he was strictly orthodox and his heart was set on a reconciliation with the roman see this measure was also viewed with favour by the majority of the populace of constantinople with whom the heterodoxy of anastasius had become decidedly unpopular thus the negotiations for a settlement of the dispute went prosperously forward the anathemas which were insisted upon by the roman pontiff were soon conceded the names of zeno of anastasius and of five patriarchs of constantinople who had dared to dissent from the roman see were struck out of the diptychs or lists of those men living or dead whom the church regarded as belonging to her communion and thus the first great schism between the eastern and western churches a schism which had lasted for thirty-five years was ended it was probably foreseen by the statesmen of ravenna that this reconciliation between pope and emperor a reconciliation which had been celebrated by the enthusiastic shout of the multitude in the great church of the divine wisdom at constantinople would sooner or later bring trouble to theodoric's arian fellow-worshippers in point of fact however an interval of nearly six years elapsed before any actual persecution of the arians of the empire was attempted the first cause of the alienation between the ostrogothic king and his catholic subjects seems to have arisen in connection with the jews theodoric on account of some fear of invasion by the barbarians beyond the alps was dwelling at verona that city the scene of his most desperate battle with odovacar commanding as it does the valley of the adige and the road by the brenner pass into the tyrol was probably looked upon by theodoric as the key of northeastern italy and when there was any danger of invasion rather than in the safer but less convenient ravenna there too he may probably have often received the ambassadors of the northern nations who went back to their homes with those stories of the might and majesty of the ostrogothic king which made dietrich of bern theodoric of verona a name of wonder and a theme of romance to many generations of german minstrels while theodoric was dwelling in the city of the adige tidings came to him apparently from his son-in-law eutheric whom he had left in charge at ravenna that the whole city was in an uproar the jews of whom there was evidently a considerable number were accused of having made sport of the christian rite of baptism by throwing one another into one of the two muddy rivers of ravenna and also in some way not described to us to have mocked at the supper of the lord the christian populace of the city were excited to such madness by these rumours that they broke out into rioting which neither the gothic vice-regent eutheric nor their own bishop peter the third was able to quell and which did not cease till all the jewish synagogues of the city were laid in ashes when tidings of these events were brought to verona by the grand chamberlain trivan or triguila who as an arian was suspected of favouring the jews and when the hebrews came themselves to invoke the justice of the king theodoric's righteous indignation was kindled against these flagrant violations of civilitas 
it was not indeed the first time that his intervention had been claimed on behalf of the persecuted children of israel at milan and at genoa they had already appealed to him against the vexations of their neighbours and at rome the mob excited by some idle story of harsh punishments inflicted by the jews on their christian servants had burned their synagogue in the trastevere to the ground the protection claimed had always been freely conceded theodoric while expressing or permitting cassiodorus to express his pious wonder that a race which wilfully shut itself out from the eternal rest of heaven should care for quietness on earth was strong in declaring that for the sake of civilitas justice was to be secured even for the wanderers from the right religious path and that no one should be forced to believe in christianity against his will nor was this willingness to protect the jews from popular fanaticism peculiar to theodoric always so long as the goths either the western or eastern branch remained arian the jews found favour in their eyes and jacob had rest under the shadow of the sons of odin now therefore the king sent an edict addressed to eutheric and bishop peter ordaining that a pecuniary contribution should be levied on all the christian citizens of ravenna out of which the synagogues should be rebuilt and that those who were not able to pay their share of this contribution should be flogged through the streets the crier going behind them and in a loud voice proclaiming their offence the order was doubtless obeyed but from that day there was a secret spirit of rebellion in the hearts of the roman citizens of ravenna from this time onward occasions of difference between theodoric and his roman subjects were frequently arising for some reason which is not explained to us he ordered the catholic church of st stephen in the suburbs of verona to be destroyed then came suspicion the child of rancour an order was put forth forbidding the inhabitants of roman origin to wear any arms and this prohibition extended even to pocket knives in the excited state of men's minds earth and heaven seemed to them to be full of portents there were earthquakes there was a comet with a fiery tail which blazed for fifteen days a poor gothic woman lay down under a portico near theodoric's palace at ravenna and gave birth so we are assured to four dragons two of which having one head between them were captured while the other two sailing away eastward through the clouds were seen to fall headlong into the sea more important than these old wives fables was the changed attitude and the wavering loyalty of the roman senate from the remarks made in an earlier chapter it will be clear that a conscientious roman citizen might truly feel that he owed a divided allegiance to the ostrogoth his ruler de facto and to the augustus at constantinople his sovereign de jure through the years of religious schism this conflict of duties had slumbered but now with the enthusiastic reconciliation between the see of rome and the throne of constantinople it awoke and in that age when as has been already said religion was nationality an orthodox eastern emperor seemed a much more fitting object of homage than an arian italian king there were two men united by the ties of kindred who seemed marked out by character and position as the leaders of a patriotic party in the senate if such a party could be formed these men were boethius and his father-in-law symmachus 
both roman nobles of the great and ancient anician gens boethius whose name we have already met with as the skilful mechanic who was requested to construct a water clock and a sundial for the king of the burgundians was a man of great and varied accomplishments philosopher theologian musician and mathematician he had translated thirty books of aristotle into latin for the benefit of his countrymen his treatise on music was for many centuries the authoritative exposition of the science of harmony he had held the high honour of the consulship in five ten twelve years later he had the yet higher honour of seeing his two sons symmachus and boethius though mere lads arrayed in the trabea of the consul symmachus the other leader of the patriotic party in the roman senate had memories of illustrious ancestors behind him a century before another symmachus had been the standard-bearer of the old pagan party and had delivered two great orations in order to prevent the christian emperors from removing the venerable altar of victory from the senate house now his descendant and namesake was an equally firm adherent of christianity a friend and counsellor of popes a man who was willing to encounter obloquy and even death in behalf of nicene orthodoxy he had been consul so long ago as in the reign of odovacar he had been an illustrious prefect of the city under theodoric he was now patrician and chief of the senate caput senatus the last two titles conferred honour rather than power the headship of the senate especially being generally held by the oldest and if not by the oldest by the most esteemed and venerated member of that body such was symmachus a man full of years and honours a historian an orator and a generous contributor of some portion of his vast wealth for the adornment of his native city boethius left an orphan in childhood had enjoyed the wise training of his guardian symmachus when he came to man's estate he married that guardian's daughter rusticiana though there was the difference of a generation between them a close friendship united the old and the middle-aged senators and the young consuls sprung from this alliance who were the hope of their blended lines bore as we have seen the names of both father and grandfather up to the year five twenty three boethius appears to have enjoyed to the full the favour of theodoric from a chapter of his autobiography we learn that he had already often opposed the ministers of the crown when he found them to be unjust and rapacious men how often says he have i met the rush of cunigast when coming open-mouthed to devour the substance of the poor how often have i baffled the all but completed schemes of injustice prepared by the chamberlain triguila how often have i interposed my influence to protect the unhappy men whom the unpunished avarice of the barbarians was worrying with infinite calumnies paulinus a man of consular rank whose wealth the hungry dogs of the palace had already devoured in fancy i dragged as it were out of their very jaws but all these acts of righteous remonstrance against official tyranny though from the names given they seem to have been chiefly directed against gothic ministers had not forfeited for boethius the favour of his sovereign 
the proof of this is furnished by the almost unexampled honour conferred upon him certainly with theodoric's consent by the elevation of his two sons to the consulship the exultant father from his place in the senate expressed his thanks to theodoric in an oration of panegyric which is now no longer extant but was considered by contemporaries a masterpiece of brilliant rhetoric so far all had gone well with the fortunes of boethius but now perhaps about the middle of five twenty three there came a great and calamitous change we must revert for a few minutes to the family circumstances of theodoric in order to understand the influences which were embittering his spirit against his catholic that is to say his roman subjects the year before his grandson segeric the burgundian had been treacherously assassinated by order of his father king sigismund who had become a convert to the orthodox creed and after the death of theodoric's daughter had married a catholic woman of low origin in the year five twenty three itself thrasamund king of the vandals died and was succeeded by his cousin hilderic son of one of the most ferocious persecutors of the catholic church but himself a convert to her creed notwithstanding an oath which hilderic had sworn to his predecessor on his deathbed never to use his royal power for the restoration of the churches to catholics hilderic had recalled the bishops of the orthodox party and was in all things reversing the bitter persecuting policy of his ancestors amalafrida the sister of theodoric and widow of thrasamund who had been for nearly twenty years queen of the vandals passionately resented this undoing of her dead husband's work and put herself at the head of a party of insurgents who called in the aid of moorish barbarians but who were notwithstanding that aid defeated by the soldiers of hilderic at capsa amalafrida herself was taken captive and shut up in prison probably about the middle of five twenty three thus everywhere the arian league of which theodoric had been the head and which had practically given him the hegemony of teutonic europe was breaking down and in its collapse disaster and violent death were coming upon the members of theodoric's own family if eutheric himself as seems probable had died before this time and was no longer at the king's side to whisper distrust of the catholics at every step and to put the worst construction on the actions of every patriotic roman yet even eutheric's death increased the difficulties of theodoric's position and his doubts as to the future fortunes of a dynasty which would be represented at his death by only a woman and a child and these difficulties and doubts bred in him not depression but an irascible and suspicious temper which had hitherto been altogether foreign to his calm and noble nature such was the state of things at the court of ravenna when in the summer or early autumn of five twenty three cyprian reporter in the king's court accused the patrician albinus of sending letters to the emperor justin hostile to the royal rule of theodoric of the character and history of albinus notwithstanding his eminent station we know but little he was not only patrician but illustrious that is in modern phraseology he had held an office of cabinet rank on the occasion of some quarrel between the factions of the circus 
theodoric had graciously ordered him to assume the patronage of the green faction and to conduct the election of a pantomimic performer for that party he had also received permission to erect workshops overlooking the forum on its northern side on condition that his buildings did not in any way interfere with public convenience or the beauty of the city evidently he was a man of wealth and high position one of the great nobles of rome but perhaps one who up to this time had not taken any very prominent part in public affairs his accuser cyprian still apparently a young man was also a roman nobleman his father had been consul and he himself held at this time the post of referendarius or as i have translated it reporter in the king's court of appeal his ordinary duty was to ascertain from the suitor what was the nature of his plea to state it to the king and then to draw up the document which contained the king's judgment it was an arduous office to ascertain from the florid and often trembling suitor in the midst of the hubbub of the court the precise nature of his complaint and a responsible one to express the king's judgment neither less nor more in the written decree there was evidently great scope for corrupt conduct in both capacities if the referendarius was open to bribes and in the formula by which these officers were appointed some stress is laid on the necessity of their keeping a pure conscience in the exercise of their functions cyprian seems to have been a man of nimble and subtle intellect who excelled in his statement of a case so well was this done by him from the two opposite points of view that plaintiff and defendant in turn were charmed to hear each his own version of the case so admirably presented to the king of later years theodoric weary of sitting in state in the crowded hall of justice had often tried his cases on horseback riding forth into the forest he had ordered cyprian to accompany him and to state in his own lively and pleasing style the for and against of the various causes that came before him on appeal even we are told when theodoric was roused to anger by the manifest injustice of the plea that was thus presented he could not help being charmed by the graceful manner in which the young referendarius the temporary asserter of the claim brought it under his notice thus trained to subtle eloquence cyprian had been recently sent on an embassy to constantinople and had there shown himself in the word fence a match for the keenest of the greeks lately returned as it should seem from this embassy he came forward in the roman senate and accused the patrician albinus of outstepping the bounds of loyalty to the ostrogothic king in the letters which he had addressed to the byzantine emperor in this accusation was cyprian acting the part of an honest man or of a base informer the times were difficult the relations of a roman senator to emperor and king were as i have striven to show intricate and ill-defined it was hard even for good men to know on which side preponderated the obligations of loyalty of honour and of patriotism on the one hand cyprian may have been a true and faithful servant of theodoric who had in his embassy at constantinople discovered the threads of a treasonable intrigue and who would not see his master betrayed even by romans without denouncing their treason 
as a real patriot he may have seen that the days of purely roman rule in italy were over that there must be some sort of amalgamation with these new teutonic conquerors who evidently had the empire of the world before them that it would be better and happier and in a certain sense more truly roman for italy to be ruled by a heroic king of the goths and romans than for her to sink into a mere province ruled by exarchs and logothetes from corrupt and distant constantinople this is one possible view of cyprian's character and purposes on the other hand he may have been a slippery adventurer intent on carving out his own fortune by whatever means and willing to make the dead bodies of the noblest of his countrymen stepping-stones of his own ambition in his secret heart he may have cared nothing for the noble old goth his master with whom he had so often ridden in the pine wood nothing too for the great name of rome the city in which his father had once sat as consul long accustomed to state both sides of a case with equal dexterity and without any belief in either this nimble-tongued advocate who had already found that greece had nothing to teach him that was new may have had in his inmost soul no belief in god in country or in duty but in cyprian alone both views are possible we have before us only the passionate invectives of his foes and the stereotyped commendations of his virtues penned by his official superiors and i will not attempt to decide between them when cyprian brought his charge of disloyalty against albinus the accused patrician who was called into the presence of the king at once denied the accusation an angry debate probably followed in the course of which boethius claimed to speak the attention of all men was naturally fixed upon him for by the king's favour the same favour which in the preceding year had raised his two sons to the consulship he was now filling the great place of master of the offices false said boethius in loud impassioned tones is the accusation of cyprian but whatever albinus did i and the whole senate of rome with one purpose did the same the charge is false o king theodoric the interposition of boethius was due to a noble and generous impulse but it was not perhaps wise in view of all that had passed and without in any way helping albinus it involved boethius in his ruin cyprian thus challenged included the master of the offices in his accusation and certain persons not goths but romans and men of senatorial rank opilio the brother of cyprian basilius and gordentius came forward and laid information against boethius here the reader will naturally ask of what did these informers accuse him but to that question it is not possible to give a satisfactory answer he himself in his meditations on his trial says of what crime is it that i am accused i am said to have desired the safety of the senate in what way you may ask i am accused of having prevented an informer from producing certain documents in order to prove the senate guilty of high treason shall i deny the charge but i did wish for the safety of the senate and shall never cease to wish for it nor though they have abandoned me can i consider it a crime to have desired the safety of that venerable order that posterity may know the truth and the real sequence of events 
I have drawn up a written memorandum concerning the whole affair. For, as for these forged letters upon which is founded the accusation against me of having hoped for Roman freedom, why should I say anything about them? Their falsehood would have been made manifest if I could have used the confession of the informers themselves, which in all such affairs is admitted to have the greatest weight. As for Roman freedom, what hope is left to us of attaining that? Would that there were any such hope. Had the king questioned me, I would have answered in the words of Canius, when he was questioned by the emperor Caligula as to his complicity in a conspiracy formed against him. If I, said he, had known, thou shouldst never have known. These words, coupled with some bitter statements as to the tainted character of the informers against him, men oppressed by debt and accused of peculation, constitute the only statement of his case by Boethius which is now available. The memorandum so carefully prepared in the long hours of his imprisonment has not reached posterity would that it might even yet be found in the library of some monastery or lurking as a palimpsest under the dull commentary of some medieval divine it could hardly fail to throw a brilliant if not uncoloured light on the politics of italy in the sixth century but trying as we best may to spell out the truth of the affair from the passionate complaints of the prisoner i think we may discern that there had been some correspondence on political affairs between the senate and the emperor justin correspondence which was perfectly regular and proper if the emperor was still to them dominus noster our lord and master but which was kept from the knowledge of the king of the goths and romans and which when he heard of it he was sure to resent as an act of treachery to himself that boethius the master of the offices under theodoric should have connived at this correspondence naturally exasperated the master who had so lately heaped favours on this disloyal servant he used the power which he wielded as master of the offices that is head of the whole civil service of italy to prevent some documents which would have compromised the safety of the senate from coming to the knowledge of theodoric all this was dangerous and doubtful work, and though we may find it hard to condemn Boethius, drawn as he was in opposite directions by the claims of historic patriotism and by those of official duty, we can hardly wonder that Theodoric, who felt his throne and his dynasty menaced, should have judged with some severity the minister who had thus betrayed his confidence the political charge against boethius was blended with one of another kind to us almost unintelligible a charge of sacrilege and necromancy at least this seems to be the only possible explanation of the following words written by him my accusers saw that the charge of desiring the safety of the senate was no crime but rather a merit and therefore in order to darken it by the mixture of some kind of wickedness they falsely declared that ambition for office had led me to pollute my conscience with sacrilege. But philosophy had chased from my breast all desire of worldly greatness, and under the eyes of her who had daily instilled into my mind the Pythagorean maxim, follow God, there was no place for sacrilege. Nor was it likely that I should seek the guardianship of the meanest of spirits when divine philosophy had formed and moulded me into the likeness of God. 
the friendship of my father-in-law the venerable simacus ought alone to have shielded me from the suspicion of such a crime but alas it was my very love for philosophy that exposed me to this accusation and they thought that i was of kin to sorcerers because i was steeped in philosophic teachings the only reasonable explanation that we can offer of these words is that medieval superstition was already beginning to cast her shadow over europe that already great mechanical skill such as boethius was reputed to possess when his king asked him to manufacture the water clock and the sundial caused its possessor to be suspected of unholy familiarity with the evil one perhaps also that astronomy which was evidently the favourite study of boethius was perilously near to astrology and that his zeal in its pursuit may have exposed him to some of the penalties which the theodosian code itself the law-book of imperial rome denounced against the mathematicians this seems to be all that now can be done towards rewriting the lost indictment under which boethius was accused the trial was conducted with an outrageous disregard of the forms of justice it took place in the senate house at rome boethius was apparently languishing in prison at pavia where he had been arrested along with albinus thus at a distance of more than four hundred miles from his accusers and his judges was the life of this noble roman unheard and undefended sworn away on obscure and preposterous charges by a process which was the mere mockery of a trial he was sentenced to death and the confiscation of his property and the judges whose trembling lips pronounced the monstrous sentence were the very senators whose cause he had tried to serve this thought the remembrance of this base ingratitude planted the sharpest sting of all in the breast of the condemned patriot it is evident that the senate themselves were in desperate fear of the newly awakened wrath of theodoric and the fact that they found boethius guilty cannot be considered as in any degree increasing the probability of the truth of the charges made against him but it does perhaps somewhat lessen his reputation for far-seeing statesmanship since it shows how thoroughly base and worthless was the body for whose sake he sacrificed his loyalty to the new dynasty how utterly unfit the senate would have been to take its old place as ruler of italy if byzantine emperor and ostrogothic king could have been blotted out of the political firmament boethius seems to have spent some months in prison after his trial and was perhaps transferred from pavia to the agere calventianus a few miles from milan there at any rate he was confined when the messenger of death sent by theodoric found him there is some doubt as to the mode of execution adopted one pretty good contemporary authority says that he was beheaded but the writer whom i have chiefly followed who was almost a contemporary but a credulous one says that torture was applied that a cord was twisted round his forehead till his eyes started from their sockets and that finally in the midst of his torments he received the coup de grace from a club in the interval which elapsed between the condemnation and the death of this noble man who died verily as a martyr for the great memories of rome he had time to compose a book which exercised a powerful influence on many of the most heroic spirits of the middle ages this book the well-known if not now often read 
consolation of philosophy was translated into english by king alfred and by geoffrey chaucer was imitated by sir thomas moore whose history in some respects resembles that of boethius and was translated into every tongue and found in every convent library of medieval europe there is a great charm the charm of sadness about many of its pages and it may be considered from one point of view as the swan song of the dying roman world and the dying greek philosophy or from another as the book of job of the new medieval world which was to be born from the death of rome for like the book of job the consolation is chiefly occupied with a discussion of the eternal mystery why a righteous and almighty ruler of the world permits bad men to flourish and increase while the righteous are crushed beneath their feet and as in the book of job so here the question is not probably because it cannot be fully answered it is the consolation of philosophy not of religion or at any rate not of revealed religion which is here administered so marked is the silence of boethius on all those arguments which a discussion of this kind inevitably suggests to the mind of a believer in the crucified one that scholars long supposed that he was not even by profession a christian a manuscript which has been lately discovered seems to prove beyond a doubt that boethius was a christian and wrote orthodox treatises on disputed points of theology but for some reason or other he fell back on his early philosophical studies rather than on his formal and conventional christianity when he found himself in the deep waters of adversity and imminent death he represents himself in the consolation as lying on his dungeon couch sick in body and sad at heart and courting the muses as companions of his solitude they come at his call but are soon unceremoniously dismissed by one nobler than themselves who asserts an older and higher right to cheer her votary in the day of his calamity this is philosophy a woman of majestic stature whose head seems to touch the skies and who has undying youth and venerable age mysteriously blended in her countenance having dismissed the muses she sits by the bedside of boethius and looks with sad and earnest eyes into his face she invites him to pour out his complaints she sings to him songs first of pity and reproof then of fortitude and hope she reasons with him as to the instability of the gifts of fortune and strives to lead him to the contemplation of the summum bonum which is god himself the knowledge of whom is the highest happiness then in order a little to lighten his difficulties as to the permission of evil by the all-wise and almighty one she enters into a discussion of the relation between divine foreknowledge and human free will but this discussion a thorny and difficult one is not ended when the book comes to an abrupt conclusion being probably interrupted by the arrival of the messengers of theodoric who brought the warrant for the writer's execution the consolation of philosophy is partly in prose partly in verse the prose is generally strong clear and comparatively pure in style wonderfully superior to the vapid diffusiveness of cassiodorus and most writers of the age the interspersed poems are sometimes in hexameters but more often in the shorter lines and more varied metres of horace and are to some extent founded upon the tragic choruses of seneca 
it is of course impossible in this place to give any adequate account of so important a work and one of such far-reaching influence as the consolation but the following translation of one of the poems in which the prisoner makes his moan to the almighty may give the reader some little idea of the style and matter of the treatise the harmony of the natural world the discord of the moral world o thou who hast made this starry whole who has fixed on high thy throne who biddest the blue above us roll and who sway the planet's own at thy bidding she turns the changing moon to her brother her full-fed fire dimming the stars with her light which soon wanes as she draws to him nigher thou givest the word and the westering star the hesper who watched o'er night's upspringing changing his course shines eastward far phosphor now for the sun's inbringing when the leaves fall fast neath autumn's blast thou shortenest the reign of light in radiant june thou scatterest soon the fast-flown hours of night the leaves which fled from the cruel north are with zephyr's breath returning and from seeds which the bear saw dropped in earth springs the corn for the dog-stars burning thus all stands fast by thine old decree nothing wavers in nature's plan in all her changes she bows to thee yea all stands fast but man o oh, why is the wheel of fortune rolled while guilt thy vengeance shuns why sit the bad on their thrones of gold and trample thine holy ones why doth virtue skulk where none may see in the great world's corners dim and the just man mark the knave go free while the penalty falls on him no storm the perjurer's soul o'erwhelms serene the false one stands he flatters and kings of mighty realms are as clay in his moulding hands o ruler look on these lives of ours thus dashed on fortune's sea thou rulest the calm eternal powers but thine handiwork too are we ah quell these waves with their tossings high let them own thy bound and ban and as thou rulest the starry sky rule also the world of man end of chapter 13